Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. When the pandemic hit, schools across the nation went remote, and what followed was the most radical shift in the history of American education. How radical? Well, in about a week, about 50 million students left brick-and-mortar schools and began learning from home, and millions of teachers had to shift to Zoom or even more removed modes of instruction, and that was just spring 2020. Over the next full pandemic school year, schools offered remote, hybrid, or in-person instruction at different rates and for different durations. The results of this massive experiment are slowly coming into focus, and a new study from Harvard Center for Education Policy Research, NWEA, and Calder fills in some important pieces of the puzzle. This study, titled The Consequences of Remote and Hybrid Instruction During the Pandemic, uses testing data from 2.1 million students across 10,000 schools to investigate the role different modes of instruction had on student outcomes and on achievement gaps. Today, two of the study's authors, Dan Goldhaber and Emily Morton, have come onto the podcast to discuss what they found. Dan Goldhaber is the director of Calder and a professor of the School of Social Work at the University of Washington. And Emily Morton is a research scientist at the Center for School and Student Progress at NWEA. Dan, Emily, welcome to the report card. Thanks, Matt. Good to be here. All right, so this is a pretty big study, so let's just break it down in broad strokes. Dan, what questions did you set out to answer? So, Nat, I'm actually going to begin by saying that there are two different reports that were released um, the report about modality, and another report that was um, just descriptively taking a look at how much variation did we see in student achievement across a lot of different districts and variation across um, different grade levels and, and student, student and school subtypes. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about, I suspect we will both be talking a little bit about both of these. Um, but in answer to your, your question, um, what we saw were pretty dramatic uh, drops in student achievement during the pandemic relative to pre-pandemic expectations. And I think that that's been documented in, in prior NWA re reports. Um, what is, I think, more novel and pretty convincing that at least a, a large share of that drop and a particularly large share of the growth in achievement gaps that developed as a consequence of the pandemic were related to um, different effects and different incidents of remote instruction. And you all looked at achievement gaps, and that, that takes some qualification because there's several different achievement gaps, and you captured the absolute achievement gap, and also for subgroups. Not only that, but you looked across a number of modalities a number of different variables. Can you just run down the different axes along which you guys examine student outcomes? Emily? Sure. So we examined student outcomes across a bunch of different variables that we thought might be related to the pandemic. Um, these included things like the percent of uh, unemployment in an area and um, different uh, labor market types of things. Um, various different variables that we thought might also explain what happened to students uh, during the pandemic and why these achievement gaps were growing. Um, what we found was that the 
share of a school's year spent in remote learning was really what explains these uh, these changes the most. Um, and so that's why we think looking forward, we really want to highlight the importance of in-person instruction and think about uh, what we'd love to think about really how, how this matters going forward. Nat, I wasn't sure if you meant when you said axes, whether you meant um, what explains the gap as as Emily was was um, mentioning, um, and and I would say just to add on, we didn't set out to to um, look at the effective modality. Rather, there, it was a much broader sort of uh, research endeavor to to say, hey, we see variation uh, across you know school districts and schools. Can we explain it? Um, and so Emily cited some of the factors that we looked at to try and explain it, and modality really just jumped out as as the primary um, factor. So I wasn't sure if you meant that, or if you meant um, the kinds of gaps that we looked at, which is you know gaps between white students and students of color, um, and high or low poverty schools. Yeah, and also just absolute achievement prior to the pandemic, right? Just high-performing schools and low-performing schools. Looking sort of at at the school level, at just how big the achievement gaps are in absolute terms. Yeah, and, and how achievement gaps vary along the prior achievement distribution. A lot of those details are in this, this second, more um, general report that, that is uh, available. Right. And and that's the call to report, which we'll link to in the show notes. And no shortage of tables and graphs. As no I shortage remember. of tables and graphs. No. Nope. I must count after like 80, page 85 or so. Uh, but, but lots of interesting stuff to get to. Let me ask you this. There's a lot of things we'd like to know and only so much data we have to get at it. So that can give us blind spots, right? We don't have perfectly universal data. We don't have measures on all the constructs. How much data did you think you were missing? Or what's one of the prime suspects that you wish you had to complete this picture, but maybe couldn't get the data to analyze that uh, particular input? I'll I'll say two things, um, and Emily, chime, chime in here. Um, one is, um, first off, a, a thank you to you, Nat, and the folks at AEI, because we used some of your data on, on um, remote, in, remote, hybrid, and in-person instruction. Um, and I think that it's some of the best data that is out there, but I also think that it's imperfect. Um, and, you know, it was collected kind of on, on the fly in the midst of, of uh, a pandemic that we were all living through. Um, and, and so as probably as good as it gets, but, um, you know, if you ask where would we like better data, it might be on some more nuance, um, and comprehensiveness of what was actually going on in terms of school modality. And then this is a a little more anecdotal, but, uh, I think how school districts handled you know, remote or hybrid instruction in particular, that there's a lot of variation beneath those high level characterizations. Um, So like there are school districts where, you know, there was asynchronous versus synchronous 
you know, it, it remote instruction. There are school districts where there was um, food distribution centers um, and, and school districts where I know that there were teachers that were going to um, students' uh, homes to try and engage with the, the students and their families remotely, but trying to keep, keep students engaged. And I think that, that, um, that some of those nuances I would expect might matter for how successful or generally unsuccessful remote learning was. Yeah, and and Emily, I'm sure you all at NWEA have been trying to kind of figure out how best to get at this because you've got this treasure trove of student outcome data, but you know, some of this is kind of lost to history. Is that what you all have found at NWEA? Yeah, so in terms of what else we might want for data, um I think it would be really valuable to know more about what exactly happened in the testing in, in the fall um, as we return to school, what those test environments looked like. Were they different than uh, traditional test environments is something that we don't have data on and it's hard for us to know. Um, we, I will say we've done sort of a first pass at looking at that on our, on our team and we don't have evidence to suggest at this point that, that kids were really engaging in those tests differently in terms of the way they were responding to questions, the duration they were spending on each uh, you know, type of question and in other types of engagement measures we look at. Um, so that gives us some, some confidence, but of course there's no way to know if, if the qualitative environment that, that students were in during that fall was different um, and will be important going forward. So there's imperfections in the data, but characterize for listeners the magnitude of the differences that uh, we saw over the pandemic, just sort of like baseline, not across subgroups. Dan, how would you communicate the magnitude of how far back students were from where we would have expected to them to be in a pre-pandemic trajectory? So uh, I'm gonna begin by characterizing to the, to the policy wonks and the statisticians in the audience by saying that uh, the the the, loss from what we might have expected students to achieve was on the order of magnitude of, you know, 0.23 to right around 0.3 standard deviations. And to put that into um, kind of perspective and and maybe a, a, a more readily graspable, graspable number, um, that is larger than the, the losses that we saw as a consequence of Hurricane Katrina. And um, students typically in a school year in early on in, um, in their educational career, like you know, K, K through three, they're, they're gaining between three quarters and a standard deviation of um, student achievement. So if we kind of benchmark that against, um, and there's lots of caveats that go along with those kinds of benchmarks, but if we were to benchmark this against what we typically see in terms of student learning, you know, we're talking about, you know, around a third of a year of typical student learning gains. Um, and it, the, the, the amount of student learning that, that um, the amount that students gain on standardized tests in, in higher grades tends to be even a little smaller. So it's even a little bit larger if you were to use some of the, you know, the higher grades as the benchmark. And Emily, when we think about these at scale, right, it's, it's one thing to talk about in these measures like, well, this 
intervention in this small sample um, raised achievement by 20% of a standard deviation. That's a pretty healthy change with a small sample. This is a huge sample where we're seeing these differences. You know, what does that tell you about the, the magnitude of these changes? So that's a really key point. And so, yeah, it shows that these magnitude, that the catch-up effort is going, required is going to be really substantial um, and sort of unprecedented in many ways. And so when we think about the, the second study that we did really points to the fact that these uh, magnitudes of loss are also not consistent across all districts. So that's um, something that we really want to focus on in terms of how we sort of what we're talking what we call right sizing uh interventions to match the magnitudes of losses so when you say thinking about this at scale um what we really want to do is think about it at scale but using districts local context so the scale of this problem that we sort of presented on a at a national level is really important for thinking about it from sort of the federal angle and and these other sorts of levels but at in within districts we really want them to be using their own data to drive, inform the uh, efforts, their recovery efforts and the interventions that they'll use for kids. Now, can I pick up on this and just say two things? One is that, um, it, again, in the, in, the, in the massive report, one of the, you know, the 150 tables that's probably in the appendix um, shows, a, it's, a, it's a figure and it shows a picture of um, of district level student achievement, what you kind of would ex- would have expected versus what you w- what we saw, and there's a, most districts, as you would expect, around ninety percent of districts are um, below and 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 oftentimes well below where uh, the students in most districts are well below what you would have expected their achievement to be. But there are some districts that are actually doing, you know, as well or even a little bit better. You know, the, the, the minority of districts are doing a, a little bit better. And so the point here is that there's a lot of variation in what's happening. So I just wanted to kind of add to Emily's point and then say that this analysis is set within a broader project where we're working with a consortium of school districts to try to figure out what is it that is working in in terms of the myriad interventions that they are trying to get students back on on track um, so that they can figure out what's working, maybe what's not working so well and and make adjustments while they have, you know, quite a lot of federal money that they can use to help help get back on track. But I think that we have to be kind of humble about applying past lessons um, about what works and what what doesn't to the pandemic context, because um, as Emily said, you know this is something that happened to all of us at a massive scale. So there are all of these logistical issues that are going to come up with um, trying to take solutions to scale. You know everything from can you hire enough tutors when every district in the country or most districts in the country are trying to to hire tutors to um, how much intervention is going to matter for kids when they're getting multiple inter- interventions? Um, so I, so I think uh, I think there's a lot to to learn, um, and that we really don't know at this point sort of what are the right 
strategies. We could we could make some good educated guesses, but we have to be humble about what we know now. So one of the the strengths of this work that you've done is that you have a, a comparable test score across a bunch of schools across a bunch of states. So these are kind of apples to apples comparisons. And that enables you to look across subgroups. It looks like everybody took something of a hit. Not everybody. You said there's some districts that have raised a little bit, and, and that's understandable. But when you talk about student groups, the pandemic wasn't great for any particular group, but it was worse for some groups than, than others. Emily, what are some of the subgroups that saw the toughest road through the pandemic and have the largest gains to make moving forward? Yeah, so unfortunately, we see the loss achievement in the among the high poverty or low income districts amounts to about what we estimate is about forty percent of a of a school year of learning, uh, just under forty percent. Um, in comparison, high poverty districts who remain in person, um, as well as low poverty uh, schools who uh, remained in person, so. Regardless of, you know, the, the income makeup of the district, um, when they remained in person, they lost about 15% of the school year in terms of learning. So 15% compared to 40 is a really big difference. And we really need to be targeting resources and, and thinking about how to support districts, uh, the high poverty districts in making up those gaps. It, it was it was the students that were struggling before the pandemic. The pandemic seemed like it had a more of an adverse impact. So um, students of color, um, high poverty students in high poverty schools um, and, and students at the, you know, in the bottom portion of the prior uh, achievement distribution. That's where we're seeing, uh, you know, greater struggles. And those kids were coming in on the lower end of the distribution. And that means the gaps that were existing, which I think we spent a few decades trying to narrow, are getting, well, they got wide very quickly. Let, let me ask about the arrangement here, right? So we know that these effects hit poor students uh, harder than less poor students, or at least poor uh, students in high poverty schools more than uh, those in, in lower poverty schools. But you also observe in the data, which I've also observed, that the school closures, the, the remote length was longer in high poverty schools than in low poverty schools. So the question then is, well, was it the length of the durations of remote and hybrid instruction that hit the low poverty schools? Or was it that equal doses hit high poverty schools harder and that high poverty schools tended to be remote longer. Is my question clear? Because these are confusing things to pull apart. Dan? So I'm going to, I'm going to restate your question to make sure that I got it right. Um, and then, and then if I did, I'll, I'll, I'll try and answer it. Um, the, there are two things that could be going on here. The, um, there's, there's an incidence question. Um, what are the kind of schools that tended to be remote and then there's an impact question, which is what is the effect of being remote on different kinds of schools? Correct. And so the question is like, um, how much of, in in the mix of the greater loss that we we you know we see is due to incidence or impact? 
and and the answer is it's 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 not either or it's 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 both um so uh the the schools serving high poverty students tended to be more likely to be remote and the effect on high poverty schools of being remote was greater i do want to say that it's not quite clear that that has anything to do with the schools themselves you know this is these are these are descriptive findings in in many ways um it is possible for instance that you know um Students in low poverty schools have um, parents who are more likely to be able to be at home um, and working with their kids as they are are remote or getting them extra help. And so that we kind of we're talking about it as if it's what's going on in the schools. Um, but I think it's it's a combination of probably of what's going on in the schools and what's going on in homes and communities. Okay, at the risk of losing some listeners by saying the words decompose variation in students' scores, you did decompose that variation. And I, I think there's some telling results here. Emily, can you tell us what that phrase means and, and how it informs the difference in the incidence versus the impact of extended re- remote or hybrid instruction? Sure. So we can look at the growth in the uh, gaps between high and low poverty schools. Um, and what we can see, what we can look at is what explains that difference. Um, and that's what this decomposition is. So um, part of it is the incidence of the remote learning and part of it is the impact of that remote learning uh, when students were remote. So what we see is that about only a, about a third of that, uh, of the growth in the gaps and the difference was explained by the incidence so how often students were remote, whereas about half was explained by uh, the impact of that. So to Dan's point earlier, um, we think that it could be that the students who were in high poverty schools uh, were not able to ha- have the same resources to access uh, online instruction in the same ways. Perhaps they didn't have internet access, perhaps they had less of uh, access to device or to devices at home or to um, a quiet space to participate in remote learning. Um, and so that was accounting for more that the impact of remote learning was accounting for more of the difference than the incidence. Ned, I, sorry, I was just going to, I was just going to add that we're, we're um, focused. We've been, all of the discussion is focused mainly on the math results um, and the reading results are broadly consistent with the math results in terms of the, you know, the directions and, and um, the, the, the breakdown of, um, of how much is due to um, incidence versus impact. But they tend to be, they're a little bit different and they tend to be a little bit smaller. Um, and that too is kind of consistent with earlier findings about remote learning um, and about the pandemic in general, that there are much larger impacts on on math achievement than reading. And there may be at least a common sense take on this, which is, well, yeah, math takes a little bit more direct instruction, whereas 
reading might be a little bit easier to, you know, progress on, even if you're not in class. Is that a, a reasonable take on that? Or is there something else underlying those results? No, I think it's I think that it's not surprising that we're seeing these results are are somewhat different between math and reading because it's consistent with what we often see with interventions that will find larger effects of interventions in school on math tests than on on reading tests. And when we're talking about all these test score changes, we're really talking about where they were before the pandemic. So not just before the the, the one school year, but really before the entire pandemic to, you know, over a, a, a year later. So it's the full span impacts. Is there any way to sort of distinguish uh, the effects of those first three months, that spring 2020, when it was just really tough sledding from what was going on the next school year? No, I was going to say that some some of our districts did test in the fall um, following the first few months of disruption. Um, but it's really tough for us to know um, what to make of those test scores. And so um, we feel much more confident in the scores that were take the using the scores that were before the pandemic and then using those scores um, from the fall of this year, given that those were taken in more traditional classroom environments um, with less of the general chaos unfolding around them. Um, so we feel that those are more reliable metrics to use. And I suppose that we see such differences by what happened in the first full pandemic school year as far as mode of instruction, you got to think at least a good chunk of this is attributable to that latter year and not to differences prior to that instruction happening. Does that sound reasonable as well? I think it's hard to, to really to know, um, you know, what it's hard to parse it out. Um, so I, I guess I'd be a little bit reluctant to, to, uh, try and attribute, you know, the effects to one part of the year versus another. Right. Okay. Let me take a pause here. We've introduced a new section to the podcast. You guys get to go second. This is called grade it. And I'm just simply going to throw out some short terms and ask you to grade it on a scale from A to F. Dan, Emily, you game? Sure. <laughs> yeah, Emily, you go first. All right, Emily, first one's to you. Four-day school week. Uh, oh man, uh, give it a C. <laughs> a C, okay. Uh, wait, 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 hey, dude, do I get to weigh in on that? I give it a D. <laughs> Dan's a tougher grader here. Um, Dan, uh, Pacific Northwest. Oh, A. Emily? I'll give it an A too. Okay. We're okay. on the board on that. <laughs> a little homeschooled advantage. Uh, next one. Dan, to you first, pre-pandemic virtual schooling. C minus. Emily? D. <laughs> I, so, okay, I, I, wanna, I do want to do some context on that. Like, um, there's, there is evidence from um, studies on charter schools that there is an evolution of quality over time. And I think virtual schooling is altogether different um, and that uh, it wouldn't be surprising if we get better at it. I also think to some degree, hopefully not to the same degree as the, the last 
um, few years, virtual schooling has got to be part of our future because it would it, it enables schools to reach more students with more varied um, instruction and so that we should get better at it. But all that said, um, the, the evidence on the performance of virtual schools thus far is is not been good, but it's early on. It's early days. Emily, how well would you say the academic education research community has risen to the challenge of the pandemic's effect on schools? I'll give it. <laughs> I'll give us a B. I think uh, there's made, a lot of headway has been made, and we've given we've been able to produce some results very quickly to get evidence to the folks who need it. Um, unfortunately, it's never fast enough, and we also are going to have a really huge blind spot when it comes to what's happening in districts because we haven't asked. Um, and I think this is this is speaking not only to the research community, but also to the policy community. We haven't asked for data from districts about what's happening to students and what's happening in terms of the initiatives they're using. Um, so I think we're we're not going to know nearly as much as we'd like on how the dollars were spent and what their effects were. Dan, the flip side of that one. How well have schools responded to the research that has been done on the impact of the pandemic? Um, I think that this is a 90% to be de determined. Um, I think that we'll know a lot more in the next couple of, of years. Um, but I will say that I am a little bit worried. Um, and I'm worried uh, going back to some of the discussion that we had earlier about you know, interventions and how do we get kids back on track that um, we need to make sure that that plans um, are scaled so that they're commensurate with the, the magnitude of the problem that we're facing. And I don't I don't know exactly what to expect, but I think and this is just I really want to emphasize, you know, anecdotal and impressionistic that um, I'm worried that there's only so much that you can cram in in an existing school day and school year um, and that there is diminishing returns to greater intensity of, of, of schooling. And so I would, I would feel more comforted if there was more time that kids, it looked like kids were getting in schools. And I think that that um, I don't want to lay this all at the at the feet of the schools, because I think that there's a lot of politics connected to, you know, for instance, extending school years. But I'm 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 worried about um, whether we actually do have plans that are commensurate with the, with the depth of the hole that we're in. That sounds like an incomplete and you've got a lot of work to do, kid. You, I want to I want to I want to I, I will give <laughs> um, a um harsher grade um, they, on, on what I know better lo locally because um, my kids were in remote schools um, in, you know, 21, in, in 2021. Um, and I feel like there was a, a bit of magical thinking that was going on in the, the summer right after the, the spring when the pandemic hit about the next school year 
um, and there was sort of hedging, hedging, hedging all the way towards the end of the summer. And there was a decision to go remote and there was not enough prep so that remote went smoothly um, on lots of issues where I would have expected things to go more smoothly. And I'll give it, I'll give you an anecdote um, that there was, um, you know, like I've, I of course listened into like lots of the classes that my daughter, for instance, was in. And there was a class where, you know, students were liking something that one of the other students said um, in, in chat. Um, and every time a student would like this statement, there'd be a ding. And so it was like, ding, 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 ding. And the, the teacher kept asking the students not to do this, but also didn't know how to control the system. That, that's about, you know, that's about professional development and preparation for, you know, the, the new platform. Um, and I think there wasn't enough preparation for being on a platform, even though they had been on it in, you know, in the, in the spring. Emily. How about parent demand for programs to combat the learning loss that we've seen? Um, I'll hedge before I make my decision on the grade, but I think uh, that's a tough question because parents are facing so many concerns for their kids in these moments. And um, there are so many parents, parents have so many concerns right now about students' well-being beyond just their academic performance and those concerns are extremely justified. So um, as a parent to, to have to think about all of those compete, competing things at once and really want the best for your child, um, I think their demand is good. I'll give them a, a strong grade, I'll give them an A, but I think uh, it's also competing with demand for so many other uh, things that, that they're hoping will be addressed in schools as well. Dan, you get to grade that one too. I would I would um, say a little bit lower than an A, um, because but I don't know whether to you know blame parents, which I'm I'm loath to do, um, or to say that that maybe people really don't understand again the the depth of the hole that we're in, but I I really worry about what's going to happen to these kids if they don't get back on track. Test scores are not destiny, but I think they are a good metric um, if you're going to try to predict the future. So if I were betting, um, today I would bet that if we don't dig out from the hole in terms of test score and other, you know, other schooling of effects, that we're going to see significantly greater societal inequity um, in the future when the kids graduate and, and you know, engage in post-secondary activities, college, the workforce, et cetera. Um, so I, I don't know that people sort of know how, how strongly in, in, in test scores predict some of these um, later life outcomes. All right. And you made it through the graded section. So we're going to move on to that last section here. So in the paper, you don't just discuss the academic setbacks that happened over the pandemic, but you also talk about how the pandemic relief funding should be considered relative to those impacts. Take me through your, your discussion and logic in the paper. 
in 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 very rough terms, what we do is is we um, we calculate the um, magnitude of learning losses, or and, and by that, just to be clear, doesn't mean that somebody has actually lost test score, but lost relative to what we would have expected um, for different kinds of districts who had different types of modality. And so we can say how much of a year's worth of, of learning did we see these different kinds of districts lose? And we juxtapose that against um, what their ESSER spending or ESSER funding l looks like um, relative to a, um, a, a year's worth of, of funding in those, those districts. That part's easy, right? Because you can, you can quickly calculate what is the, um, you know, the, the dollar allocation and you know what the spending, spending is. And what we did is we point out that in some cases, the amount of money available doesn't look like it's, it's, it sort of matches up in um, year terms with the learning loss. And in some cases, it more than matches up. And when you talk about these estimates, and I appreciate you're saying, well, this isn't an exact science, but in some instances, you could think that this isn't a Pollyanna-ish estimate, but kind of a lower bound, right? Because you don't only, you don't have all this extra time. You have to, you know, keep swimming and speed up rather than just add some more available time to catch up. So the gulf that we're talking about is a really big challenge. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that the you're assuming ex exactly what you said. You're assuming that uh, we're this is a lower bound because we're assuming that you can use all of that extra money just like you use in a regular school year. Um, and all of this money in in reality is going to have to be used to drive improving achievement beyond what the regular school year can do. Um, so you might think that's actually probably more expensive to, to add extra achievement than it is just to have a regular hour of the school year. Emily, we talk about this as being tough with the assumption that, but we can do it. And there's a real question about how permanent and insurmountable these challenges are. And, and it's fair, right? I mean, this was a huge pandemic. There's lots of insurmountable problems that it presented, but it begs the question. I mean, we have learning loss and widened achievement gaps. Do you think these are surmountable or should we sort of right set our expectations for what's going to happen over the next couple of years? I think uh, deciding that these are, are permanent or, or trying thinking that way really in my opinion, helps no one. Um, and so there's an opportunity here to rethink about how we do education and to use some really innovative approaches to get support to the students who are were most negatively impacted by this. Um, I don't think that this is, that the, the gaps in what we're seeing right now are things that we can't um, improve. Some of our work and what one of the things we call out in this paper is that the, the NAEP uh, achievement disparities have, the achievement gaps have really decreased over the past um, decade. And so 
there has been good work. We need to continue to do good work, but we need to push it perhaps a little bit more than we have been um, and use the extra funding that we have to support the kids uh, who were most impacted by this. And Dan, let me ask you the same question, but in the particular context of this work that you you mentioned briefly earlier, where you're working with several school districts on their interventions to kind of give them the feedback they need to be nimble and improve these things and, and get them to the right places. Can you just say a few words about how that can help districts meet the challenges they're facing? I think from decades of, of schooling research that um, we see that lots of things that we try don't work. And that's, that's true. That's true just sort of generally in, in life. Um, so we ought to go into this with the presumption that there are going to um, be, th- that we're going to face some lack of success. Um, and, 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 and I, my hope would be, that the way that um, that that is perceived is that's that's what happens when you try is sometimes you don't make it. Now I say that because I I I think our effort here with the school districts is to try to give them feedback again about what's working and what's not working, so that they hopefully um, abandon or modify um, strategies as appropriate so that the money, the ESSER money, while they have it, is really well spent. I, I want to say one other thing that is kind of connected to this issue of the, the, of the size of the hole that we face um, and the, the, the grading um, that we give schools and parents. Um, I, I also think that what's, a, what's kind of missing from, from ESSER and ESSER reporting is making sure that that it looks like we're at least on a trajectory, a path that um, that gets us back to pre-pandemic achievement, and so that you can see, like, okay, we're we're through year one, and it it's things are going pretty well. It you know we haven't recovered completely, but um, we got a couple more you know years ahead of us where we're going to have some extra resources. Um, and we're on the right path or, wow, we, we really need to rethink our strategies um, because we're not close to um, where we, we would need to be to be on the right trajectory. And um, that, that lack of um, sort of big picture sort of planning and year to year, what should we see? Um, I think is is a concern because I think that having those kinds of plans and knowing where you are in terms of meeting those plans um, help with a sense of urgency. Well, we'll leave it there. Dan, Emily, thanks for your research. Thanks for coming on the report card to talk about it. Thanks for having us. Nat, it was, it was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus and special thanks to our guests, Dan Goldhaber, and Emily Morton. We'll include a link to the consequences of remote and hybrid instruction during the pandemic and some of the other work referenced in the episode in the show notes. Remember, you can subscribe to the report card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute to leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. 
You can send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus. 